welcome back for this week's episode of Remarkable Parks Podcast. I'm your host, Olivia. Thank you so much for joining us. If it is your first time here, thank you for choosing to take a risk and try something new. (laughs) Um, We have someone that's not new here this week, though. I am thrilled to be bringing back a repeat guest on this podcast, my friend Casey. Hello. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me back. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Anytime. Anytime. Um, since the last time you were on the podcast, a lot has changed. Uh, yes, a lot has changed. It's been a while. It's, I, I was an early guest, I think. You were. I think you were one of my, my first five or six guests that I had on the podcast, and you were still living in Indianapolis at the time. That's right. That's where Olivia and I met. We worked together in Indianapolis, and I have since moved cross-country in the opposite direction from you. Um, back home to Pennsylvania. Yes, and you're in the Philadelphia area? That's right. We're about 45 minutes if there's no traffic outside Philly. I was, <laughs> my dad had called me earlier this week and he asked who was, if there was going to be a guest on the podcast this week. And I said, yes, Casey is going to come back on the podcast. And he said, didn't she move? And I said, yeah, I think... Or to Pittsburgh, and he goes, whoa, no, I know that's not right. It was definitely Philadelphia. You <laughs> cannot mistake those two. <laughs> yes, it is a uh, significant culture difference to uh, those two ends of the states. Um, however, I will say, like, we have friends who are from Pittsburgh who we met in Indi- Indiana, and then you're like, oh, okay, we're outside Pennsylvania, so there's no rivalry. Now we're just <laughs> okay. in solidarity from being from PA, but now I'm back, yeah, in the Philly area, which means... Um, Philly solidarity, obviously. Okay. See, these are, this is good cultural norms I need to know. Um, Of course, you know me. I'm like an open book that just automatically says what the brain is thinking. So I had to tell you that that was an almost mistake that I made. That's all right. I wouldn't have been offended. But, but, you know, we're going to be talking about a park that's a little closer to Philly. So. Yes. I have never been to Philadelphia. I have never been to the park that you chose this week. And not to mention, have I never been to this park, but also you chose a national historical park, which is a first for Remarkable Parks. I was wondering that. So last time I was on, we talked about Indiana Dunes, which is a national park. And I originally had thought when I was a kid that Valley Forge was just a regular national park. Um, but it doesn't quite qualify when you're like looking at lists of national parks because it is a national historical park. Um, So I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about some of the fun stuff that goes on there. Yes, I am honestly a little nervous if I'm being totally (laughs) candid. Uh, Valley Forge National Historical Park in Pennsylvania is a place I have never been to and I always try to do some research leading up, and it was funny because Casey texted me, and uh, we were trying to figure out the time day to record this episode, and she basically encouraged me to take an extra day for research, and I now understand why. (laughs) I was like, I don't think she has any background in this, and and even I was like, let me open the Google page, even though I've been there many a time. There um, is a a lot of history. As the the historical park name suggests. (laughs) 
Uh, I basically think that during this episode, you are going to be hosting, and I will be. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not qualified for that. Um, Am I allowed to plug my podcast really quick while we are... Yes. In fact, I felt like that was a perfect segue because you are qualified. You have your very own podcast, and please plug right away. Okay. It's certainly not about parks, but it's adjacent to parks. So if you like the nature aspect of the things that Olivia talks about on her awesome pod, uh, I am the co-host of A Little Greener, which is a podcast about sustainability, conservation, and nature. So if you want to delve into some cool topics on that, uh, my co-host Sarah and I uh, talk about all sorts of different topics and it's around the holidays right now. So we've been covering all sorts of sustainable holidays, myths about reindeers, what's the greenest Christmas tree. So if any of that strikes a chord with you, go ahead and give us a listen. We're on all the platforms, uh, a little greener podcast. Yes. And I highly recommend I do subscribe. Um, I, (laughs) this is an early on episode that you did, but I still can't get over your passion about seaspiracy that you <laughs> talked about like I don't know it was like one of the first episodes you did maybe I think maybe a slacker's guide to sustainability but I'm in for a good rant generally <laughs> I just it, Casey is so good at gathering information and giving an impartial view and then giving her opinion and perspective but um I don't know why but that particular episode you all released <laughs> sticks with me <laughs> Sometimes it's the emotional impact, right? That's that's what we learned as part of our jobs as environmental educators is it's about the emotions. And that one really uh, struck a chord with me on an emotional level. Yes. So I'm glad that it stuck with you as well. And uh, for context, for those of you who are new listeners to Remarkable Parks, as Casey mentioned, we did meet in Indianapolis and we both were working at the Indianapolis Zoo. Uh, in the education department um, as interpreters. And so a big part of what that is is storytelling. We kind of covered last podcast, but a lot of people like me when I accepted the job had no idea what an interpreter was. (laughs) So um, really, really good educators and storytellers, I think, is the goal. And and lots of awesome interpreters work at our our parks, locally and nationally. So... uh, if yes. you are in, ever visit any of the ones that Olivia covers, then you are liable to run into one of us crazy educators trying to get you emotionally connected to the land that you're on. Absolutely. And at Valley Forge National Historical Park, not only are there interpreters, but there are also actors. Yes, they are reenactors. Oh um, my gosh, I, I got way too hooked on that part when I was <laughs> researching. Okay, let's let's start, Olivia. How familiar are you with the story of Valley Forge? Uh, novice. I will give myself a little bit more credit than beginner because I've read three Google pages, um, <laughs> but definitely not advanced or expert. <laughs> so I discovered in college, I went to college in Virginia, and obviously when you're in college, people come from a lot of different places but that's when I realized that so much of our history lessons growing up are extremely specific to the region that we grow up in and that's when I realized that I had done a stupid amount of my my history lessons in school growing up about the Revolutionary War 
because Philadelphia is an extremely important site. So, of course, if you're going to go on a field trip, you're going to be going to different important elements in Philadelphia related to Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell. And we went on several field trips to Valley Forge. Um, So Valley Forge, if you're not familiar or if you're an international uh, listener, is the grounds where the the arm, Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, where Americans were seeking independence from Britain, um, camped out over a long and horrible winter yes. <laughs> um, outside of Philadelphia. And it is uh, today a beautiful area, beautiful rolling meadow. When you go to the actual like visitor centers and things, they are very focused on really what an awful place it was. <laughs> At the time, it was not a good experience in like 1777, but uh, but now it's an amazing park to visit. Yes, very good overview. Um, I was hoping that you would take the lead on many of the <laughs> historical aspects, but am I correct in saying that we are in the territory of Hamilton, the musical? Uh, yes, Lin-Manuel Miranda... Um, uh, had mentioned during his speech once that he really kind of screwed over Philadelphia in making (laughs) Hamilton because he had to really like, you know, pick and choose what elements he was going to focus on. But Philadelphia was really central to this time period. And they do mention in one of the uh, songs, I'm not sure if it's right hand man or guns and ships that basically like, this is a down and out period. Washington is, and, and you should know anywhere around like the East coast, anywhere Washington, like, walked or sat or like spoke words we like to like put a memorial or there's a, a platform there. yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and so so basically this whole like place is like oh but they actually did spend a, a, a decent amount of time there and it, it was a, at a pretty low point for the army basically they weren't cl- I watched also a lot of Liberty's kids I don't know if anyone remembers that show when I was a kid but like it was a point where uh the army didn't have uniforms a lot of soldiers didn't even have like complete clothes they didn't really have a lot of formal training um really they they were losing um the war and this is not only a place where they they suffered a pretty terrible winter but also kind of rebounded this is where people like um Lafayette and Baron von Steuben came in to help uh overcome some of the adversity that they were uh, living in at that, those times and and later in the war ended up winning um, because of some of the things that, that they were able to pull together during this time. One of the things that I did not realize was the large scale that the Valley Forge encampment was. I read mm-hmm. on the National Park Service that the n- number of soldiers present at this camp ranged from 12,000 to nearly 20,000 masses of people which is a stupid amount of people in that small space it it is you know I never really thought of it that way and it is like it's something like 3,500 acres the total park um so it is a a large space but I I guess I never really thought about the number of human beings I just and and a lot of them had their families like there was the women Mm -hmm. and the children were there too it it just I can't even imagine I always I'm very um I don't know. I have a very creative brain and I always put myself as if I'm in a play and I was in their spot and I'm like, wow, that would really be horrible. <laughs> like living <laughs> living in that situation. Uh. Yeah, it, it's, it's worth noting, um, they stayed in Valley Forge over winter and like 
the if you go to Valley Forge today, there are numerous little uh, models of the cabins that people lived in um, during this time, and they really are just like log shacks with like <laughs> bunk beds in them and a little fireplace, and it is like. It really does. the The visitor center is really lovely too, because they do a really good job of really just illustrating how tough the conditions were, um, and and just at the difficult spot that the army was in, and and so like the fact that after this moment we were able to uh, kind of change the course of, of the tides and, and the fact that the Continental Army won at all against Britain is kind of wild when you look at some of the things they were facing at this place. Absolutely. I also read that many historians regard Valley Forge as the birthplace of the American Army. Yeah, I think that's um, one of my the, one of the parking lots that you go into. I know, super exciting <laughs> part. But there, there's a statue of Baron von Steuben who I want to say was a Hessian or a German man who came over and helped like basically be like, uh, this is how armies work where you train people to do things in unison and uniforms are important. So yeah, it really was like um, sort of a tipping point from just having a bunch of rebels to actually having an army. Yes, I believe Baron von Steuben was Prussian. Oh, that makes, yep, that, that rings true. And I have a quote here from him. I also was going to mention him. I See, even if though we, Casey and I live scores apart now, we still page. are on the same page. Uh, but yeah, basically he, as Casey said, introduced a system of discipline into the now U.S. Army that involved drills and tactics and formations. And he had a quote saying... Um, I should have been pelted had I attempted it and should inevitably have failed. The genius of this nation is not in the least to be compared with that of Prussians, Austrians, or French. You say to your soldier in Europe, do this, and he doth it. But at Valley Forge, I am obliged to say, this is the reason why you ought to do that. And then he does it. (laughs) And I thought that was funny because I felt like that was very encompassing of Americans. It, it does. It, it rings true. We're, we're not necessarily blindly obedient. We really would like some um, convincing and yes. reasoning. <laughs> yes. So I hope you enjoyed my uh, Prussian accent uh, reading. I, okay. So <laughs> I, I'm, do, do you remember Liberty Skids growing up? No. Tell me You're more. You're a little younger than me. It is on. Uh, it was on PBS when I was a kid. And it was basically the American Revolution through the eyes of, like, some kids that lived during those times, some cool teens. Um, And when you look at the voice actors that they had for this show, it is wild. Like, they, it was like (laughs) Oprah, and I'm pretty sure Baron Von Steuben was played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Like, just, you're like, how did they get all these actors for this, like, these people are like Oscar winning folks, like, but every person like Alexander Hamilton's in it, George Washington. I don't remember who plays all of them, but if you look at that cast list, it's crazy, but it had a huge like impact on me. Um, American girl doll. I had Felicity. She was a revolutionary war era, uh, gal. So this was like, you know, those time periods in history that really like strike you personally. Yes. yes. This is for some reason, as a kid, really what, 
um, got me like fascinated and, and I had some good teachers as well. So it's very cool that, you know, this was, I don't know if it, it was because it was so local or because, you know, it just happened. I, I got to grow my love because uh, I was local and got to see lots of the original places, but um, Valley Forge, I now live about 15 minutes from it. Um, and so you can really delve into a lot of the history there, but it is also now a really beautiful area to walk and hike and um, see nature as well, which is really cool. Andrew pointed out, he's my fiance, that... Um, shout out to Andrew! Shout out to Andrew, <laughs> hey! hey. <laughs> he, uh, he pointed out that basically, like, this Valley Forge is currently home to one of the largest meadows in the area. And he was like, wow, it just takes, you know, things related to war to preserve land. But, you know, that's, that's what we got now. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I guess whatever it takes to become a park, question mark. <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, yeah, let's yeah, go for sure. it. Um, yeah, I, I, and I do want to point out, because um, we, were, we were just talking about how you visited a um, museum that uh, talked about um, people were here before the Revolutionary War. And yes, according I went to their... to the first Americans Museum in Oklahoma City today, and it's in downtown Oklahoma City. Super cool. Plug for them. Yes, plug for them. Um, so indigenous peoples did live in the Valley Forge area as early as 10,000 years ago. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I talk about this every episode and it still gets me every single time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just sort of unfathomable to think about like, huh, you know, we almost, we're in the year 2021, but humanity has stretched out so before our artificial sort of time periods. Um, but our local um, tribes here were the Lenape and Lenape, and um, they're also known as the Delawares. And I guess before Valley Forge was an encampment, um, the Lenape had already sort of been pushed out of the area by European settlers, um, and that area was kind of largely agriculture. But now they are trying to... Um, reestablish some of the forests that are in that area and meadows that might have been more closely what those uh, original indigenous folks were living amongst rather than what was there at the time of Washington and the Revolutionary War. That's awesome. And it, what you're getting at is one of the driving home points that I took away from the First Americans Museum today, which is America is in its infancy stage compared to the peoples that have lived here in the continent of North America. Like it's like you said, 10,000 years, you know, we've been a country for what, like 250 ish somewhere in there. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's so, uh, such an interesting point, especially for this park, because really like this park is a park because of America at its infancy, like at its inception. Um, but time is really like what we make of it and compared to so many other civilizations and cultures we are we babies as far as our identity goes still even 250 years later absolutely man I'm like I know that you and I could just dive into this (laughs) Casey I feel like you're so much more well-versed in talking about history (laughs) I, I, I did spend five years just talking for a living. <laughs> That's I do fair. think when you kind of talk for a living, you get a little more comfortable talking about basically anything, like the improv element of it. 
Um, so I'm by no means an authority, but uh, but I thought that you just brought up a really great point there. And it's something I've been trying to be more thoughtful of when I do visit parks is like, who lived here before? Like, how is this representing? Like, the, like our reality is, is sort of constructed because since Europeans arrived in the United States, we have changed so much about not just the natural landscape, but also the um, landscape of people who lived here and managed these lands. Um, what what are our parks kind of aiming to do? And some parks are obviously almost strictly recreational. Some of them are nature preserves. Some of them, in this case, are historical in their education element. But when you walk around Valley Forge now, um, you get to see some of their land management plans for restoring the ecosystem. And it's really fascinating um, seeing a a meadow (laughs) because there really aren't any natural meadows around. And it has to be a managed meadow because uh, we don't have the same sort of megafauna. So like uh, large elk and things that might have been around um, in earlier times. So it's, it's just kind of fascinating what the goals of each of those places are. For sure. Yes. Uh, I um, wanted to also, while we were talking about the people um, that were part of the history of Valley Forge, I wanted to talk about um, some of the women present at Valley Forge because I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that many of the women, they, they followed their enlisted loved ones in the army to this site. And they, as you were talking about, they stayed in these uh, shabby cabins. Um, but I read something about one woman that was just crazy to me, and I wanted to share it with you. Her name is Mary Ludwig Hayes, also known as Molly Pitcher. Have you heard of her? I have heard of Molly Pitcher, but it's been a while since I've heard her story. Okay, so she was born 1744. Uh, She's the daughter of a New Jersey dairyman. And 13-year-old Mary marries a barber named William Hayes. 13 years old. And during the American Revolution, her husband enlisted in the uh, 4th Continental Artillery Regiment. And she joined him for the Philadelphia campaign in the Valley Forge Winter Encampment. Um, And she famously assisted in the artillery crew. And she loaded a cannon in the place of her husband when he got injured. So Molly Pitcher. Shout shout out to 13-year-old Molly Pitcher, who's cooler than I will ever be. (laughs) Yeah, there's all sorts of really interesting stories of, like, just... Again, uh, we were... Uh, Andrew will say we were born in the right time and I agree I don't I can't imagine a 13 year old me with like a whole husband (laughs) and like being in a battleground where he's like grievously injured and like being like well I guess I'll load Load this cannon (laughs) here we go (laughs) thousands of people have died of disease around me and I am Loading a cannon. I guess all there's left to do is load this cannon here. Yeah, I know, and just <laughs> hope for the best. Oh my god, I just like can't. You know, I we reach a level of empathy where our brains just cannot understand or fathom anymore. And when I reach that point, I just start laughing because I'm like, well, <laughs> I uh, guess that's what it is. Yeah, yeah it, I'm it, overloaded. It, really, it, it is a unfathomable. <laughs> 
sort of situation. But but also like in so many ways, lots of people living during that time were in these like unfathomable situations. Like even the idea of like I don't know the the thirteen colonies being like you know what we're gonna wage a war against Britain and. We don't really have an army. We're just kind of patching things together. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's pretty wild. And of course, there's lots of, uh, there's so much history in Valley Forge. I just highly recommend if you do get a chance to, to ever come to Philadelphia and you're like, gosh, I, there's so much history in Philly itself. Um, explore that. It's very cool. But if you're like, I need a little nature moment, um, this is a good way to get your history and nature fix is coming to Valley Forge. I will use that statement as a transition and ask you, what are some of your favorite trails or nature components of Valley Forge National Historical Park? Um, Two things I like about Valley Forge. um, One is that there is sort of a diverse landscape within the park. So I've mentioned the meadow, but there are some established woodlands and um, technically they're like Mount Hope. (laughs) <laughs> is is named if you're from out west please don't laugh at our mountains we take what we can get um, <laughs> I, I currently live in oklahoma so <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um so a, a gorgeous mountain <laughs> gorgeous yes um so um there's there's hills like there are some more vigorous hikes if you want to go on them they're not as long as if you were hiking out west um and you'll go along streams and riparian areas there's wetlands um, so I, I like the diversity that you can experience depending on how you're feeling. And there's lots of accessibility. There's some, some wide, flat trails if you need, uh, if that's your speed, if that's your jam. Um, but my favorite thing is last time Andrew and I visited, um, we went and had dinner in the park, um, which is also free to enter, by the way. Um, so that's Love really that. nice. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Um, and we took our dog Ginger on, I believe it's a secession path. Um, but, uh, it might be their meadows path, but basically it's a carved out pathway in the middle of their newly managed meadows. And it's, it's rather long. We actually had to turn back halfway because it was getting towards evening. Um, and it was going to be dark and I don't like to be in, in parks in the dark, (laughs) which is very Um, smart. Most accidents do happen at night. So very smart. Yes. Yep. Um, and, and so Valley Forge has gone kind of through a transformation since even I was a kid, it used to be these like big, basically mowed fields. And part of the reason, and part of the way it's changed is they started to manage the deer population. So when I was a kid, there were like over a thousand deer in Valley Forge. Um, I was telling Andrew, you used to drive through at night and you would just see like two sets of eyes but like 500 times over like you were just surrounded by deer if the deer decided to form an army we were like <laughs> not in good shape thanks for giving um, all of the listeners including me nightmares tonight. yeah there you go imagine <laughs> um they uh, but what they found is because there were so many deer and obviously no natural predators left to control the deer population that the deer were eating all of the saplings and native plants that would normally be cropping up if it was a like quote-unquote natural ecosystem um so they started to do a deer management plan which unfortunately means killing deer but what it did is restore the ability to 
um, managed this under more natural conditions by having a reasonable number of deer in the park. So there's still plenty of deer around and you still see them all the time. Um, but they went down, they said in like 2009, there were 241 deer per square mile. Holy cow. <laughs> so many. Um, and it's I would gone be down afraid to, to drive. <laughs> well, that, that was, they were saying there were like 86 accidents a year <laughs> from deer. Um, so yeah, it was like, you would drive very slow at night, especially. Um, but they have brought that down to more like 30 something deer per square mile. And so you still see plenty of deer, but they are having, um, tree plots that are starting to have native saplings that they haven't seen grow successfully within the the management period of the park. Um, and like, they're having like something like 850% more saplings, uh, being successful. Wow. Yeah. So it's, um, this component has been really key to kind of allowing the ecosystem to heal in some ways. And then the, the meadows are fairly new as well. And it's just gorgeous. Like it's dense. Um, even in November when we went and it's been weirdly warm this year, um, there were still lots of wildlife around, lots of birds flying through, just really dense, tall grass and, and flora everywhere. It's, uh, that's my favorite part to walk, I think, um, when it's not terribly hot. If it's hot, I would say go to, to Mount Hope and then go kind of walk along the stream there. But if it is a little cooler out, um, I definitely recommend that meadow path. In addition to there being an overpopulation of deer, I did see that another big issue that this park struggles with is non-native species. Yes. Uh, I was wondering, because this was new to me, but what kept on popping up when I was doing my research was the spotted lanternfly. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know of the spotted lanternfly. Oh, do I? (laughs) Well, I'm going to pass the mic to you because I have very limited information, but I I, I can share that this is an invasive species from Southeast Asia, an insect. That's right. So um, what I do now, instead of working at a zoo, is I work at a garden center. (laughs) Okay. um, So... Spotted lanternflies are, are always top of mind. Um, the Philly area has been sort of ground zero for several species of invasive insects that have come in. And spotted, lantern, spotted lanternflies just came in a couple years ago. And they are, you should really look them up. Um, they are gorgeous. They have like these really beautiful red wings and they're spotted. They and kind of look like to me like an insect that just tried to outdo the ladybug. Yeah, it's like if a, a ladybug and a butterfly had a baby. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, so like, you know, the wings are a little more substantial. Like, they're not as beetle-like as the, the ladybug, but they are everywhere. And it was worse a couple years ago because this really was like the centralized point where they were reproducing. Um, but they, like, <laughs> we we went to a park one day and just like stomped. Like, that. that is... The, the current control method is you are encouraged to stomp on site. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, these are insects that they, they feed on tree sap and, um, and they can damage native trees. They generally don't kill them outright, although they can, if they're in large numbers, they just have a, a weakening impact on their ability and their, their fitness. Um, for a lot of local tree species. So they are kind of uh, 
the cat's out of the bag basically with the spotted lantern flies but in pennsylvania we're pretty well versed in i would say done a pretty good job of educating the public that like hey it's pretty kill it (laughs) kill it immediately and then in this time of year they will lay their eggs on the uh, bark of trees and so if you see like this kind of like pasted on sort of nest structure you're supposed to scrape it off Um, but come spring again we'll be stomping on them Um, but it's been good because it hasn't been like a targeted pesticide sort of situation Okay, well then what I say might contradict what you just said, but I trust your judgment more. I saw, according to the National Park Service, that the park is selecting certain non-native trees, just very few, with a systemic pesticide. And I don't know exactly what that means. They gave no further details, but then when they feed on that specific non-native tree, I'm going to try to pronounce it, and I need you to correct me preemptively. I know I'm going to say it wrong. Alanthus trees? Alanthus? A-I-L-A-N-T-H-U-S? I don't know. I okay. don't know that particular type of tree. Okay, well, um, it's a non-native tree to Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, I I guess, like, I haven't... Maybe I spoke too, too swiftly on the whole pesticide thing. They, they haven't been encouraging homeowners to go at it with pesticides. It's mostly been a stomp thing. But obviously, in a place like Valley Forge, where you do have a lot of kind of natural biodiversity that you're trying to hold on to um what a, like i the national park service does a really good job of really studying the impacts on things but typically a systemic you you treat the plant and they suck up this uh the pesticides within their tissues and so they probably targeted these species because native bees and insects like that are less likely to feed on the non-native trees and so it's more likely to have an impact on those spotted lantern flies rather than native pollinators. I also read that praying mantises and some bird species have been observed feeding on these spotted lantern flies. So that's kind of cool that these natural predators have a, um, you know, a, a, I don't know, evolved probably isn't the right word, but I guess broadened their diet choices. And that's a great substitute and a, a good encouragement to not spray pesticide on your properties because nature is taking care of it as best she can. Yeah, uh, those prey mantises are not picky eaters. They are the definition of generalists. <laughs> they love to eat those things. So yeah, there's there's definitely, um, we're still learning about it because they're obviously introduced to an ecosystem that they're not native to. And we don't really have the knowledge base to say like, we know how they're going to interact with all of the factors because there are hundreds of species that live in this area that they're interacting with. So it is good that, um, that some of those natural predators are starting to take out those little buggers. Like I said, they're pretty. I I had a coworker who was like, I kind of feel bad for squishing them, but you (laughs) don't feel bad for squishing them. They're, they're just not where they're supposed to be. It's easy to have empathy for the individual, but knowing how damaging that they're going to be to the ecosystem overall it's kind of the same deal with the deer. Yes. <laughs> Where, um, you can have a lot of empathy for that, but but realizing that it's an impact on a greater whole, um, sometimes those things have to be taken care of. There's also an invasive crayfish species in Valley Forge too, which I was like, I better Google Valley Forge before I talk to Olivia. About it. And that <laughs> I didn't know about up, the crayfish. Know about is, is it something that people can eat because it's a crayfish? 
Oh, good question. Um, crayfish, I would not say, is a generally a delicacy up in the Northeast. I know that down south, a lot more people eat crayfish. It's called the rusty crayfish. Ooh, um, yummy. Yeah. <laughs> rusty crayfish Delicious. for dinner, boys. <laughs> mm, yeah. Put that on a menu. Um, apparently, it's it's larger and outcompetes a lot of our native crayfish. So the, one of the things I thought was really cool is apparently during the summertime they have the option of folks getting trained on crayfish removal and they'll teach you how to spot them and how to identify them and then you net remove them from the ecosystem to help them stop competing with our native crayfish so i thought that was really interesting because it's not every day that you really get to participate in a national park's invasive species removal especially when it comes to wildlife like hey they'll have you pull weeds in a lot of places but like getting to to look for crayfish in streams i think that's pretty cool it's a cool opportunity especially for like younger folks to get involved in a real meaningful way i totally agree and it's something that's hands-on and you can really have that immediate gratification for your positive impact as well yes which is something that i crave when i do things (laughs) Um, and it is not inherent to a lot of like ecosystem management is instant gratification. I know. It's a tough field. Conservation is a tough field to be in because most of the actions that you do is, it does not merit instant gratification. It's like a very slow burn where you're like, oh, we made a little difference. Good news is incremental and always feels temporary. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question, but before I do, I wanted to point out something that I thought was so cute. So the Valley Forge uh, encampment happened during 1777 to 1778 during the winter. And to kind of commemorate that, something that the Valley Forge Park does is the 78-mile challenge, kind of to give a nod to the year. And it's basically a um, challenge, an outdoor recreation challenge that you can log your miles, whether you're hiking, biking, walking, running, uh, even paddling on the waterways within the park. And uh, basically you just download a log form from the um, the National Park Service website, you track your miles and you can claim your prize at the end. And I I love positive reinforcement. So (laughs) when I read that, I was like, I want to track my miles and get a prize. (laughs) That is that I didn't know about that program. That's super cool. I, I mean, really, like, there's so many opportunities when you kind of walk in Valley Forge or you drive through it I would say typically people probably first experience the park with a straight drive through because like Andrew has to drive from Philly to our town now his drive is always through Valley Forge um, and his he gets to see it's really beautiful in the morning there's a lot of mist that kind of is over those rolling hills and meadows but from the main pathway it doesn't look like necessarily there's a whole lot of ways to experience deeper in but there are lots of little pathways there's a historical cemetery down there there's a really beautiful church there's all sorts of different little pockets to explore so i love that they have something that's actually like a pretty significant challenge that 1778 (laughs) um but uh but i mean it's worth it it's a pretty cool park especially because you mentioned it is free to enter so Mm -hmm. that's a really great resource if if you know, money is an obstacle and, you know, getting there and, and getting the means to get to the park is also an obstacle. But 
One last thing, right? <laughs> One last obstacle. My question for you is, as you live in the area and you are a native species to Philadelphia, <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you could tell me some cool local hot spots, like places to eat or museums to experience things of that nature. Oh, okay. Um, I really do think that the Valley Forge uh, Visitor Center is a, if if you've never been to the park before, is a must-see element because it is hard to grasp the depth of history just by walking around. Like, there's not necessarily as much um, si- interpretive signage as you're walking through, as you might expect. It's pretty concentrated in some of the historical buildings. Um, if you're looking for good eats, um, I am currently living in Phoenixville, which is probably 20 minutes from the park, but it's a really wonderful little growing town and it's got really good eat, eating options there. So I definitely recommend if you're like, oh, visiting from out of town, you don't, you want to get out of the city a little bit because the city's in the other direction. Um, going to, to Phoenixville and grabbing some food around there is probably your best bet for finding just about any sort of cuisine choice you're looking for. And it's a cute little town. You can walk around the small shops and everything. Um, and if you're in Philly, I know I haven't been able to go there yet, but they have a new independence center in Philly that, that opened in the last probably five to eight years. Um, and it's supposed to be really, really wonderful. And I know my mom has told me stories of how that that has had an impact on her view of history. So it's got some really cool stuff going on if you want to learn a little, little bit more about um, Philadelphia's important yet underplayed role in Hamilton in the Revolutionary War. <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. I, so when I was reading, I was just playing the entire soundtrack in my brain. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. I... I've not, like I said at the beginning, have not had the chance to visit this part of the country. And of course I would come to see you, but that's great that you have these hot spots. Yeah, lots of cool stuff to do out here, really and truly. Um, I am, like, once you leave your hometown, I feel like you become a, you can either be like, never go to that place or, (laughs) or you're a bit of like a, a hometown advocate all of a sudden you become like the mascot for your town um and not necessarily the town I grew like this is not where I grew up per se like I'm not from Valley Forge National Park but like I definitely am a big advocate of um the Philadelphia area because I think that it's uh I mean, we get we have different reputations in different arenas, but um, but it's definitely worth exploring. And there's a lot of very cool history and a lot of really cool nature experiences out here. Thank you so much, Casey. Thanks for having me. It was so good talking to you. It was wonderful talking to you as well. I I know I learned a lot of new information during our chat today, and I hope that you all listening. Also took some new knowledge away with you as well. Uh, As a reminder, Casey does co-host a podcast with her friend, our friend, Sarah, (laughs) called A Little Greener. And I know you can listen to it on Spotify because that's where I listen to it. Are there other platforms people can listen on? Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google we're basically on all the the major ones there. So if you um, are looking to follow us on social media on Instagram, we are at a little greener pod and say hi and give us a listen. You should do it. Do what she says. It's a good <laughs> podcast. <laughs> 
Um, also, I wanted to just, I guess this can be a co-plug for both of us because Spotify is doing something new. They have introduced podcast ratings on Spotify, and it's a really quick and easy way for fans to support the shows they listen to. And if you enjoy listening to Remarkable Parks, and when you enjoy listening to A Little Greener, <laughs> give a positive podcast rating and help us get our voice out there so we can connect with more listeners. If you don't like the podcast, just don't leave a rating. <laughs> <laughs> just keep hate playing it yep. so that the numbers go up. <laughs> oh, but I hate Parks and I, Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. Just mute it and keep it playing over and over. So, yeah, we so can get those plays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you again, Casey, for being on the podcast. And thank you to everyone who took some time to listen today. You can also connect with us on social media at Remarkable Parks Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you next time. Bye.